The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman with leadership and innovation in CWIP Block 3 and Next Generation Shipboard Signals Exploitation. Northrop Grumman's Maritime Electronic and Information Warfare Suite will be used to detect, deny, deceive, and defeat threats at sea. That's why they're a leader in Next Generation Maritime EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Bill, it's actually raining today for the first time in literally months. Yeah, I think uh, August 7th was the last time that we had Seriously? measurable rain here wow. in, in uh, Annapolis, which is kind of amazing. And uh, yeah, it's actually raining. And My lawn thanks you. Yeah, me too. God. Mine does too. Yeah, I mean, it's yep. brown. It looks like LA around here now. Everything's yeah, brown. Have a little bit of naval weather today. Yeah, so just... speaking of the weather, we have an article in the current issue of proceedings called Climate Change is Coming to Annapolis, caused a little bit of a stir over the weekend, and it was appropriate because... Annapolis was flooded this weekend. So this weekend, Annapolis was the annual sailboat show, as, which as I that, attend every year. And it was literally two feet underwater um, this year. And so they had pallets. They had different little dock areas where you could walk. It was pretty miserable. And some of the vendors, there was no way to access their booths. So I don't think uh, they were too happy with that. But uh, you know, in light of the article that we have in the current issue, the October issue of Proceedings, uh, it had some pickups from the local newspaper. There were some, you know, sort of mentions uh, about that article. So we got some good traction in uh, third-party uh, publications like the uh, Capital Gazette. And I think there was another place that was talking about it, too, that um, yeah. Bill Bray was talking about overnight. He mentioned that it yeah, had I'm trying to remember. Pick, picked I, up I think it was a, there was another part in the op-ed section of the Capital Gazette. So uh, or on, on Sunday, they ran, uh, they essentially reprinted big sections uh, of our article and then uh, yesterday in their op-ed section, uh, they they ran a, a, a comment about it, you know, saying that, hey, the Naval Institute proceedings is not exactly, you know, climate change monthly, right? <laughs> uh, Good yeah, point. It, it, it's For a lot of things, we are not climate change we monthly. We are not that, yeah. Um, it, you know, it's been interesting to see because it is a, a controversial topic and, you know, people have very strong feelings about uh, climate change, about the topic. And uh, yeah, the article is written by a Naval Academy graduate, class of 89, and who's now a professor of political science and, and history at the National Defense University, uh, Pat Patterson, uh, Commander Patterson. Um but he taught here at the Naval Academy. He he. There's pictures of the storm surge damage of hurricane of a hurricane in 2003 that caused a hundred million dollars worth of Was damage. Was that Floyd? Uh, Isabel, Isabel, sorry, Hurricane okay. Isabel, which caused a hundred million dollars worth of damage to the Naval Academy. Right. Uh, flooded out the the basement of uh, Rick Nimitz and Rick Over and and, and Michelson right? and, and, and Chauvet, all those right. right. And, you know, we see uh, evidence as, you know, because we work here at the Naval Academy, um, high tides or very uh, stormy weather brings, you know, 
uh, tides and, and water levels here at the academy just on a, a fairly routine basis now, much higher than anything I remember when I was here in the 80s, or, and I'm yeah. sure when you were here in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, right? I, don't, I don't remember uh, so, this you know, kind of... Sea level rise is happening. You know, why is it happening? There's been a lot of, of uh, discussion uh, on our page, uh, in the discuss platform, the comment section on that article, you know, very heated arguments. We actually shut them down uh, because it got unproductive as people were calling each other's names and, you know, you libtard and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right? we don't do that here. We don't do that here, yeah. right? You know, if you make fun of Obama or you make fun of Trump or Republicans or Democrats or anybody, yeah. um, we, we shut it down. Yeah. You know, it's the open be... por- forum is not for name calling. Right, right. Yeah. It's not a free-for-all. That's what Twitter right. is for. Exactly. <laughs> or Facebook. <laughs> and Facebook, yeah. yeah. But we do have a couple of really good, I think, professionally written, mature letters uh, by people who have some expertise in climate science, uh, who are uh, former naval officers and, and members of the Naval Institute, who've rebutted to, you know, very professionally that are be in the November issue of the magazine. So we're putting the November issue of proceedings to, to bed today. Uh, we go to Blue Lines this afternoon. Uh, that's the final touch that we have on the magazine before the printers print it and, and get it in the mail. Uh, in our comment discussion section, if you're interested in this uh, ongoing discussion of, of climate change in this article that was in the October issue. Um, I would uh, recommend that you take a look at the comment and discussion section of the November issue when it hits your mailbox. So uh, is this article in front of the paywall currently? Uh, it is in front of the paywall. Yeah. Yep. So if you're listening to the podcast and uh, not a member, we encourage you to be a member, of course, uh, but take a look, go up us9.org, go up to the proceedings channel, and you can find this article called Climate Change is Coming to Annapolis. Among the cool features is a diagram of the Naval Academy and what uh, the prognosticators and the experts say it'll look like as this century goes on. Basically, at the turn of the century, by these accounts, all the reclaimed land basically is going to be back underwater. And so we were just talking a couple of weeks ago, the golf coach of all people gave me a picture of the Naval Academy circa 1939. And where the Naval Institute is here on Hospital Point, and around the perimeter of the uh, where the columbarium is and Hospital Point ball fields was all underwater. So it seems like, in some ways, God is just taking it back, you know. But to your point, I don't remember this kind of flooding when I was a mid. Um, I certainly don't remember the level of flooding we have at City Dock on a regular basis you know, back in those days, you know. So again, we're not trying to pick a political lane here. Uh, We're just trying to introduce facts and and have the discussions happen. Because like it or not, the superintendent of the Naval Academy, for instance, has to start doing infrastructure, Milcon work to defend against this flooding. You know, we're building the Hopper Center. That that already has a built-in sort of bottom level, like you would build a house at the Outer Banks with the bottom floor would be hurricane-resistant and tide-resistant. That's kind of what they've done with with the Hopper Hall. But there are other things, like the Columbarium. You know, people are buried there. My in-laws are buried there, and it is awash uh, too often. And so these are things that, you know, we've got to do something about it, regardless of your political stance. And so that's kind of the lane that we're operating in, fact-based. Right. And, uh, you know, our our CEO, Pete Daly, had feedback on the article from the superintendent of the academy uh, and also from the architect of the academy. And they have formed a working group uh, to deal with, you know, rising sea level. Uh, They see it as a a fact of life. And it's something that the the academy is, is coming up with plans on how to deal with it. Uh, including rise, you know, raising up a seawall so that the seawall is higher. 
uh, and provide some protection from this problem, right? So uh, th they see a real problem. They see something that's going to have to in involve spending millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do something about. And uh, one of the nice things about Patterson's article is that it's, you know, part of the uh, the title is a call for action, which is what this is, right? Hey, this is a problem. Uh, if we don't do anything, um, it's it's just going to continue to get worse. And so something's got to be done, right? Well, so I mean, and little, little details, not to harp on about this, but there are days when the crew team cannot get out of Hubbard Hall to the Severn River because the water level is so high, they can't get under the bridge that goes over College Creek. Right. Right. So, you know, good luck winning the head of the Charles if you can't practice, you know, or doing these mini sprints up and down between the, you know, King George Bridge and the 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 bridge uh, that go that we have on the academy grounds that goes under college over College Creek, right? These are the little things that you think about this. You're like, wow, the devil is in the details and this is affecting the ability to do the mission. You know, so that's again, no politics, just facts. And as you uh you know, you more than anybody on the Naval Institute staff get snake bit by these when the comments and discussion digital board explodes because you have to be vigilant and make sure that if there are improper comments and stuff that's over the line, we've got to scrape that with best speed because it affects people, normal people's willingness to enter the discussion. Um, and so certainly you now have a sixth sense for what topics may incite these sorts of things, and certainly climate change is one of those things. But we stand by the reporting, or we stand by this article. It's very, very much fact-based. Yeah, and and uh, for our listeners who do go on, uh, you know, our website and look at the discuss comments and and who comment from some, from time to time, um, you know, we're trying to put this out more often and and uh, more vocally and publicly, but. Uh, you know, what we're looking for is a professional discussion online. We're, we're not, if you uh, engage in ad hominem attacks against somebody else who's commented, if you say, hey, you're ignorant, you're an idiot, you're a moron, you know, we're going to delete it. Uh, if you say, if you call somebody a libtard or a Nazi, we're going to delete it. If you call somebody, you know, a name that that's unwarranted, we're going to delete it. If you, um, you know, make fun of the forum, if you make fun of the staff, we're probably going to delete that as well. We're looking for not the free for all that is Twitter or that is, you know, many Facebook pages. We're looking for a, a, uh, a responsible public discourse, uh, you know, as fact-based as possible, right? And, and also so, between people who have a stake in the outcome, yeah, right? You're, we right. don't want free writers. Right. We want people who are seriously motivated to solve these issues as we always have. That's why proceedings exist. Right. And and from time to time, we have uh, taken very good comments from our Discuss platform, our online platform, and we've put those in the magazine, in the comment and discussion uh, section of the magazine. So we are uh, trying to transplant the or, or sort of overlap the comment and discussion from online into the magazine because the magazine is where those comments are curated, they're fact-checked, they're spell-checked. They're edited down for tightness. That's where the best, I think, most mature comments hap happen to be. But when we see great stuff online, we take it, harvest it, and we put it in the comment discussion uh, that, that takes place uh, in the magazine. So uh, as it has since, uh, you know, as we talked about last week, since 1874, right? Comment and discussion. Why don't we call it letters to the editor? Because 
in the original forum when it was people here at the Naval Academy, the first 15, having a discussion about where the Navy should go or Navy Marine Corps should go. Uh, they presented a paper and then there were comments and there was a discussion about it in person, right? And then they would write that down. Uh, and so now that's developed, you know, you can't do that. You can't have, uh, you know, 96 pages discussed in person anymore. So people write in with their comments or they can write in on uh, on our discuss platform. We can harvest those comments and publish them. Uh, and all of that is both in the print magazine and it's, uh, it's published online as well. Uh, but we're looking for, you know, a, a fact-based, serious discussion, not something that devolves into politics and not something that des- devolves into, you know, person-on-person attacks about how stupid and ignorant and, and, you know, liberal or conservative or right-wing or left-wing that you are, right? We, we want it to be a, a uh, fact-based, educated discussion of professional matter by people who have a stake in it. Because you, if you've ever you served, you would understand there is no politics in the fleet. There really isn't. Yeah, it, so go to any wardroom, any ready room, go to any FOB. There's no politics. There's be. just mission accomplishments. Right. Uh, and right. so that's where that's where we are. All right. Okay. Well, let's, we beat this. We, we did. We beat it. We let's, beat Secretariat <laughs> to death. Let's get to our uh, guest today. So we've got on the line from uh, New London, Connecticut, Commander Joel Holwitt who is uh, a repeat offender for, not the podcast yet, but for Proceedings and Naval History Magazine. And Joel has written an article that's in the October issue of Proceedings. It's called Sub versus Sub, ASW Lessons from the Cold War. We're going to talk to him about that. But he also is the winner of the 2019 CNO Naval History Essay Contest. And that essay, the winning essay, is in the October issue of Naval History Magazine, which is called Confidence in His Team. So, Joel Holwitt, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you, Bill. So, you're, you're really technically in Groton, right? Not New London. I am technically in Groton, yes. Okay, let's get that straight. Rotten Groton. <laughs> Rotten Groton. <laughs> yeah. But as we were, my wife hates when people call it that. What, Groton? Oh, okay. I'm calling it Rotten Groton. Okay. okay. It's actually a very nice place. Yes. Uh, as we were chatting before we started the show, uh, we were just up there. We did our interview with General Kelly at the Coast Guard Academy on the uh, opposite shore from you. I guess that would be the southern shore of the Thames River. And while we were there, there the USS Toledo was returning from deployment. And it was, you know, again, as an aviator, I don't often see these sorts of things. It was really, really impressive to see this, you know, black hulled. Is that an L.A. class, Joel? What, what kind of sub is the Toledo? That's a improved Los Angeles class submarine. Okay, see my recce is pretty pretty awesome. All right, right? Um, and uh, everybody was you know manning the the deck there, um, and uh, it was really really just sort of gave me chills to wa- to watch that evolution as they sailed down the, the river there. So that is a pretty place, and uh, this is a good, great time of year. It's about to be not so nice weather wise, right, Joel? I mean, um, you have a nice window from say mid August until let's say late October. You know, weather-wise, uh, where that's the best time to be there. Yes, it's beginning to get into the fifties now, so we'll, we'll start getting into winter here very quickly. Right, but otherwise, you know, New England is a fantastic place, and, and so thanks for joining us, and let's chat about uh, about the article here. Yeah, so Joel, uh, you are a uh, a career submariner, and your current job is at the Undersea Warfighting Development Center. And we reached out to you because you'd written for Naval History and you'd won this uh, essay contest a couple times. And we asked you to write this piece on um, ASW lessons from the Cold War. 
that's in the October issue starts on pages uh, 16 and 17. So what are the, at, at the 30,000 foot level, what are the high level uh, lessons uh, for anti-submarine warfare and submarine warfare from, from the Cold War? All right. Thank you, Bill. That's a, uh, that is a big question. And it's really hard to sum up in only 2,000 words in an article. And I'm going to have an even harder time uh, trying to do it right now. But uh, before I begin, I do need to hold faith with my JAG and tell you that whatever views I say, whatever opinions I have, they're mine, and they don't necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, or the Undersea War Fighting Development Center. Okay, and uh, now that I've gone out of the way, I'm going to talk history. <laughs> Automatic. Automatic. Okay. All right. So uh, I think, it, first off, I would say that one of the biggest lessons from the Cold War was that we had to really prioritize, you know, you had to make anti-submarine warfare a priority from the get-go. And uh, in 1946, 1947, Chester W. Nimitz, when he was CNO, did exactly that. He made it one of the Navy's top two priorities, along with nuclear warfare, which is a brand new field of warfare. And uh, that was based entirely off of we had captured all these German U-boats. We saw all these new technologies that the Germans had started to field before the end of the war, and we recognized this was actually a pretty significant threat uh, and that the Russians uh, had gotten their hands on this as well and that we expected them to be taking full advantage of this. And strategically, it made sense. We expected that if there was a war uh, in Europe against the Soviets, uh, if they tried to hold on, you know, take Berlin, take the rest of Berlin and the rest of Germany, as, uh, you know, it looked for a brief period during the uh, blockade of Berlin in the late 40s, um, that we would have to resupply Europe, much as we had resupplied Great Britain during the Second World War. And we expected that the Soviets would send their submarines uh, into the North Atlantic to intercept those convoys. And so we knew we needed to prioritize ASW. Uh, but it wasn't just about words. It wasn't just, you know, saying, hey, this is our number one priority. They put serious money behind it. Um, and very helpfully, the, uh, the Kore North Koreans invaded South Korea in 1950. Congress went and quadrupled the Defense Department budget and it pretty much maintained a steady state funding level, uh, you know, that was significantly higher than it is now in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, that level of funding, um, through the Cold War. And, um, Owen Cote, who I think if, if people haven't read his, his terrific history of ASW in the Cold War, the third battle, which is available off the Naval War College, uh, website, it's a Newport paper. You can go to their website and download it. It's a 90 page PDF. You can knock it out in a day. He has this great point that, like, hey, without that funding level, you know, that's a pretty necessary uh, a necessity towards having new an ASW response. You need to have the funding. You need to have the infrastructure. You need to have the ships. You need to have the bases. Um, that takes money. It takes people. Uh, it takes investment. And so that's where that priority comes from. Joel, you mentioned uh, German U-boats that were seized after, at the end of the war. And uh, there, there were some technology uh, that, that the Germans had incorporated in their submarines that perhaps the U.S. and the Russians didn't have at that time. What were some of those capabilities that, that uh, we were behind on? Um, first off, they had developed the snorkel and uh, had done a pretty good job of fitting it on their submarines. Clay Blair in his books will tell you that, yeah, it didn't work very well. It was actually a horrible physical experience for the German submariners who did snorkel a lot because the snorkel failed frequently. It caused significant pressure fluctuations through the boat, which would cause eardrums to possibly get ruptured. Um, you know, if it got bad enough, you could asphyxiate the crew because the diesel engines wouldn't immediately turn off and you could suck all the oxygen out of the, out of the ship. Um, but the snorkel was a thing that allowed them to remain submerged. It really reduced their radar cross-section to our aircraft and to our surface ships. Uh, they had 
come up with uh, the streamlined hull and the improved larger uh, uh, storage batteries that allowed their submarines to go at high speed submerged uh, for about an hour to two hours before they would run out of battery. And uh, what I think is really fascinating that we did not for a long time, uh, you know, we knew about it, but we, for whatever reason, chose not to actually exploit it ourselves. They had also put rubber all over the hull of their submarine, a coating that they called Albrecht. And uh, we and the British and the Russians all saw it. And for whatever reason, we and the British did not really take advantage of that for a long time. The Russians actually started doing it uh, much sooner than we did. Um, and then in the 1980s, we finally got around to actually exporting that ourselves and putting on, you know, this rubber coating on the outside of our submarines to reduce their acoustic signature. We had Admiral Fogo on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he you mentioned the third battle. He was talking about the fourth battle. And he also said when he thinks of his uh, Naval Forces Europe responsibilities, the thing that keeps him up at night is the emergent Russian sub-threat. So that is a real-world example of what you're talking about that was the case during the Cold War, but now it's sort of back that we're lagging in a way uh, that we need to attend to. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I mean, in the early 1980s, we saw, and I jump ahead of my article here, uh, you know, we saw a significant improvement in Soviet acoustic quieting uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. The Victor Three class submarine came out, the Sierra and the Akulas came out, and they were much quieter than previous Soviet submarines. And this was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty uh, surprising to us that they had caught up that quickly. And uh, Admiral Watkins had a quote in the 1984 proceedings uh, the time he was the CNO, he was a submariner and the first submariner to be CNO since uh, Denfield. And he had this quote where uh, he said, yeah, you know, back in 1960, when I went to my first ship, we were, you know, decades ahead of the Soviets. And then he said, I've got, to, you know, and then 10 years ago, we were about 10 years ahead of the Soviets. And now we're only four to five years ahead of them, and they are relentlessly trying to catch up. And And I think, you know, that's the kind of feeling we should have right now is that, you know, Whatever advantage we have, the, you know, we have adver- uh, competitors who are relentlessly trying to catch up. So you mentioned uh, a little bit of blind man's bluff and how the how the Russians or the Soviets caught up. And one of the things you point out is that uh, uh, the the treason by Michael Walker, who was a Navy warrant officer uh, during the Cold War. He gave away an, a, an amazing trove of, uh, of intelligence over quite some period of time. I think it was more than a decade. Uh, and that that uh, technology acquisition and the information about how we were tracking Soviet submarines led to their, uh, their quieting. Talk a little bit more about, about that and the, the different advances and some of the things in, in that paragraph of your article. Absolutely. I. It, you know, it was John Walker. He also got his son, his brother, um, and I think uh, maybe one or two other members of his family all involved in this treason. They were all in the U.S. Navy. They were all either chiefs or, uh, in one case, an officer. And I, and in John Walker's case, he became a warrant officer. It would be really hard to overstate um, how devastating this treason was uh, to our advantage during the Cold War. Because, um, uh, you know, the, the stuff that he gave the Soviets really told them a lot about how we were able to uh, do things against their ships, against their submarines, about how we were tracking them. And uh, they quickly took advantage of that. And they also went to uh, Norway and Japan. They were able to buy uh, uh, milling, propeller milling technology from the Norwegians uh, and the software from the Japanese. 
um, and uh, to make these really finely honed propeller blades that made their submarines quieter. Uh, and they knew that was a weakness because of what they had gained from Walker's uh, treachery. Uh, they also knew to start operating their noisier submarines near our Sostis arrays in order to mask the passage of their quieter submarines. Um, and so they started to have this just significant tactical uh, and operational uh, improvement that we saw. And then by the end of the Cold War, um, in another book that I, that I recommend readers read, The Silent Deep, which uh, is essentially the, the Britain's official history of, the, of, the summer, of their submarine force during the Cold War, uh, you have to, I mean, their Ministry of Defense cooperated very heavily with it, and uh, it was uh, sponsored by a former First Sea Lord who was a submariner and their version of the Director of Naval Reactors. Um, and they interviewed almost all of their Cold War uh, commanding officers who were still alive and were able to have a lot of access to their reports. Um, they talk about in 1987 how the Soviets sent five victors at the same time uh, into the Atlantic. There was a huge response by the Americans and the British to it. And, uh, and, I, mean, the, it was the, and I mean, they were working so hard. The British Nimrods, their version of the P-3s at the time, expended every one of their, their year's worth of sono buoys in the space of a few weeks trying to track all these submarines. Um, and it was very challenging. And I mean, we sent all sorts of ships and submarines to do it as well, and the British did. And they talked about that they were able to, to, to hold on to four of them was, you know, it was, it was challenging, but they were able to do it. And then there was a fifth one that was incredibly challenging that the British sent their very best submarine to go track. And they, you know, repeatedly dealt with some very close uh, encounters to try and maintain track of this very quiet submarine. So you characterize at the end of the article, these are challenging but exciting times and sort of say that the lessons of the Cold War, as we've already mentioned, are, are hyper relevant. And then perhaps in the asymmetric wars that we've been fighting since 9-11, we lost sort of the, the bubble on the ASW threat. So how is morale up there in, in Groton. How, how are, how is your cohort feeling? Are, are we on track as a program of record, uh, tracking in a way that is satisfactory for near-term and future threats, or are we, uh, in extremis? I think we are on track. Um, the submarine force commander, uh, in the latest, uh, issue of the submarine review talked about this. And, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, he says out there, hey, well, we, we had to be constructively paranoid, and we looked into this, and, uh, and you know, without overstating our advantage, uh, you know, it still exists, and we are taking a lot of steps to maintain that and to uh, continue to earn that advantage every day uh, with new technological developments, with new tactical doctrine, um, and, uh, you know, trying to take, uh, we're trying to open up some old books and, um, and learn some lessons from the past as well. So before we uh, switch to your Naval History article about Slade Cutter, I wanted to just point out a couple of really amazing facts that your uh, article brings out. First is, uh, you mentioned in, in 1989, the Soviets possessed an astonishing 349 submarines. But, big but, only 35 were their most modern, quietest, capable submarines, right? And in that quality uh, arena, the U.S. and the and the Brits had enough or you know just just more of high quality la class submarines or uh you know british uh, the british equivalents uh that had a qual a quantitative uh, and qualitative edge over the the soviet submarine fleet and that and you say you know that today's russian and chinese threat 
uh, is not nearly as big as the Soviet threat was in terms of the quantity of submarines, but uh, we, we've got to maintain, that's one of your lessons, we've got to maintain that qualitative edge over them. And, and so you're saying, in, in response to Ward's question, it sounds like the submarine force is on a good trajectory to maintain that qualitative edge? I absolutely think so. But, I mean, there's always more to be done. Uh, some of the things I talk about in my article is, uh, you know, we gotta we gotta shift to that always at war kind of mentality. Uh, the summary force commander, when he took over, said prepare for battle in his opening speech. Um, frequently says all head flank. Uh, you know, we gotta keep the uh, we gotta keep the press on. And so, I mean, there are things we can do to help us uh, really focus on that war fighting aspect. And I mean, building the infrastructure that we need ashore to support our war fighters. And uh, you've previously published. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Jeff Annenagel, who also won the CNO Naval History Essay Contest in the Rising Historian category, and I think uh, in stuff he's previously published in Proceedings as well as online, uh, he really hits the nail on the head uh, talking about what are the distractions that are keeping, um, at least in the submarine force, and I would, and I would expect that those distractions are, are similar uh, in the other warfare communities. Uh, what are the things that are keeping us from really able, being able to focus on our primary task, which is war fighting. Exactly what CNO Greener talked about when he was CNO, war fighting first. Um, and I mean, there are some administrative distractions that are out there that we can do more to take care of. There are more trainers that we probably need to make to get our crews more realistic training. Uh, and there's just an ability, you know, beefing up our maintenance facilities, beefing up the number of people at our maintenance facilities so that import maintenance uh overhauls are not as demanding on our crew and that we can really take our crew and keep them focused on training. I think those are all things that really will improve uh, where we are right now and where we need to be. So we often say that the Naval Institute is a triple threat, a quadruple threat with respect to the product suite. So, you know, the, the today's headlines live at USNI News. Today's tactical thought, modern tactical thought lives at Proceedings. We have a U.S. and I press that has the long view, 90 titles published a year, and we have Naval History Magazine, which provides relevant context, what we like to call relevant history or applied history, which Richard Latour hates that term. But we have a great example of that in the form of Joel's CNO Naval History Essay Contest award-winning article, the, the first prize winner this year. It's called Confidence in His Team, and it's about a guy named, and this is a great name as a novelist, I love this name, Slade Cutter, right? So, Joel, tell us a little bit about Slade Cutter. In hindsight, I wish I had named one of my children Slade Cutter. Now, <laughs> you can still um, do it. You can change names every uh, day. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> not doing any of those. No more children, no, no name changes. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I first became aware of Slade Cutter um, – you know, when I was uh, when I was a kid, and I read all these submarine histories, and he was, you know, he just was a larger than life character in those. But I really didn't know much about him. The other submarine aces, Bush Morton, Dick O'Kane, Sam Dealey, Eugene Plucky, they were much more flamboyant, and they just seemed to take more of the attention in the books. And so Slate Cutter, you know, was always out there, like, oh, you know, sank a lot of ships, second top submarine ace of the of U.S. submarine ace of the war, four Navy crosses. But I just didn't know that much about him, and then. Uh, 18 years ago, when I was a midshipman and I was uh, being an intern at the Naval, at what was then the Naval Historical Center, 
I was doing uh, some research for my honors thesis at the time, which was on a totally different topic, and somehow that brought me to Slate Cutter's oral history, which was there, and I, I read it from cover to cover while I was an intern. It was just the most fascinating thing, and the, the person who came across in that uh, oral history it was, a, it was a truly humble leader, uh, a Renaissance man who did all sorts of things. He had won a national music contest when he was a teenager. Uh, he was an All-American football player at the Naval Academy, an All-American boxer, who got offered a uh, you know thirty thousand dollars, which back then was you know probably equivalent to like something like a million or more dollars today, to leave the Navy, to leave the Naval Academy and become a professional boxer uh, and fight against guys like uh, Schmeling and uh, and uh, the, the Cinderella Man, whose name I'm forgetting now. Uh, and then you know gave that up. He stayed in the Navy and became this top submarine ace. And then even after the war, uh, he ran Naval Athletics at the Naval Academy. Uh, he commanded the flagship of the Second Fleet. He commanded Recruit Training Center at Great Lakes, and he was one of the first direct and he was one of the first directors of the uh, Navy Museum. I mean, the man really did everything. Um, and so I just thought it was the most fascinating history, and I just knew I wanted to, to do more with uh, research in Slate Cutter when the time came. And then, lo and behold, uh, about four months later, uh, it was after the September 11th attacks um, at the Naval Academy. I was going to uh, to religious services on the yard. And I saw this older couple wandering around looking lost, and I went to help them. Uh, and they said, well, they were looking for a concert. And I said, oh, that probably got canceled because of the September 11th attacks. Everything's been canceled. Uh, this was back when we still had Marines guarding the gate uh, with, uh, you know, behind sandbags. And, uh, you know, I went to look it up for them, though, and make sure of it. And as I'm talking, I noticed that he's wearing uh, miniature gold dolphins. She's wearing a seahorse pin. And when it's over and I'm talking, it's like, oh, you know, I, I want to be a submariner too. Uh, it looks, I see you have uh, miniature dolphins. Can I talk to you about it? And he says, oh, absolutely. My name is Slate Cutter. Wow. I nearly fell through the floor. I'm sure my voice rose quite a bit. And I said something like, oh, my gosh, you're Slate Cutter, the second top submarine ace of World War II, four Navy crosses, and you kicked a winning field goal in the 1934 Army Navy game. <laughs> that broke a 13-year uh, drought, right? I mean, that... that- sure, it sure- <laughs> It sure did. He looks at me and all he says is, you know who I am? And uh, that is exactly who he was. Such a uh, modest, uh, humble person. It was just a, the neatest honor to get to talk to him after that. You know, when I, when I was writing for this year's contest, I really wanted to talk a little bit about leadership. In previous years, I talked about strategy and personnel and innovation and how you, uh, and, and acquisitions. And I really thought there was something I wanted to talk about with history and how that really, and, and leadership. Um, and how that, uh, you know, that the tactical advantage of good leadership and how that really could have a strategic impact after a while. And, you know, looking around, I realized, you know, there's a great study story in Cutter and his team on board Seahorse, you know, where he took a team that was genuinely failing um, and was able to turn that around and turn them into the into uh, a boat that had sank 19 ships. And then even after he left, they got very badly depth charged by the Japanese. They were surprised in the middle of the night under their, uh, under their next captain. And, uh, they were depth charged so badly that they got stuck on the bottom. It was like the movie Das Boat, uh, where they're stuck on the bottom. They don't think they're going to make it up. And, uh, they've got, you know, water in the, in the ship, which is never a good thing when you're in a submarine that's under the water. Um, and all sorts of equipment that's been bashed out of uh, commission. And they were able to to get that submarine out of the mud and back on the surface and back to port. And the captain at the time said, you know, there's, there's nothing you can't do uh, with men like these. And I think that really summed up what, 
what Cutter and his team were all about. I mean, this was really a, a truly winning team, and I wanted to really summarize what what are the kind of things that that they give you a winning team like that because because we need that, particularly in a smaller navy today. If we go into a great power conflict, you need every ship to be operating at the seahorse level. We can't afford to be losing uh, ships that don't make an impact. So part of his success was mentorship. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about who Slade Cutter's mentors were. I mean, he had a number of mentors. The three most important mentors that I bring up is uh, Lewis Parks, who is his CEO in USS Pompano. And uh, Parks is a person that, um, you know, he's, he's both incredibly admirable and at the same time, he's really an example of how uh, of, of his era. Um, in terms of the incredible professionalism and uh, what a superb warrior, summary warrior he was, I mean, this is somebody who had uh, he had been in the Navy, he commissioned uh, in 1924, I think, to the Naval Academy. It was during this period when we had a glut of officers from the from the first world war and so it took him well over 10 years to promote to lieutenant commander um and so here he is 1939 he's finally made lieutenant commander and uh he has command of the pompano and he's just spent the last 10 years really coming up with all sorts of uh tricks and mental and essentially what we call mental gymnastics in the submarine force all these tricks that he can do in his head to be able to run the submarine from the periscope without having to look at any aids. Um, and he passes those along to the officers on board. He has uh, Slate Cutter, he's got David Canole and uh, Ken Schlacht, and uh, guys who all went on to things during the Second World War, and he's passing this on to them. And one of the things he does, though, is he's like, hey, I'm going to not qualify you. Like, he's fully trained them up. They're standing officers at the deck. They're being able to do everything on the submarine, but he won't qualify them for their dolphins. And uh, this goes on for over two years. And, I mean, today that would be unheard of, uh, you know, without people asking lots of questions. This goes on for over two years before someone finally starts asking questions. And, and he waited for this moment and said, let me, all right, let me show you how good these guys are. And he brings his division commander aboard to watch them because there's all these questions being asked. Like, hey, are these guys really not doing it? What's happening? They go out to sea. They have the USS Litchfield being a target for them. And, uh, and as she's zigzagging and... Uh, once again, another great Naval Institute uh, reprint that's out there, Run Sound, Run Deep. The start of the book uh, has exactly this scenario where Ned Richardson's watching Jim Bledsoe having to do this with uh, a whole bunch of other skippers watching. And, you know, they, they can only expose the scope for a few seconds, do very few observations, get the ship into a firing position against this zigzagging escort, and then shoot an exercise torpedo uh, to, make an, to make an attack. And it's a very advanced scenario, and they do it. All three of them get ahead. One of them gets a miss, and they say, well, that was a bad luck. Let's get another torpedo for that guy, and they do it. And he, he gets his hit as well, and the Parks turns to the division commander who's sitting there and has no idea how this happened. How did all three of these guys go into this advanced scenario and, and get these hits? And Lou Parks turns to him and says, well, Captain, I think these guys are so good, you should qualify them for command as well. And by the end of the day, they have their dolphins and they're qualified for command, which I'm sure is something that has never happened since. No, no, um, I guarantee you it's never happened since. Yeah. That, and, uh, yeah. and so that was very important for Cutter, and all those lessons he learned that Lou Parsh just drilled into him. I mean, even when they went to Pearl Harbor and other guys would be going to hit the beach, Parsh would tell Cutter, I want you to go to the harbor. There's a Japanese merchant ship there, and I just want you to go on the pier and just take a look and see if there's any tricks to determine the angle in the bow, which is, you know, when you look at the ship, the, the angle from, you know, the... Uh, from the very tip of their bow to wherever you're standing, that's what's called the angle in the bow, and it's very important when you're trying to come up with a firing solution. Uh, and Cutter would go do that. And that. I mean, that's just that mentality they had during this pre-war period that I don't think a lot of other submarine commanders did have, and even Cutter thought was unusual. So that was very important. 
Um, and then once the war started, uh, Cutter served very successfully as XO for Parks. He served very successfully for Parks' successor on Pompano. And then he got transferred to USSC Horse, a new construction. And so he's coming in. He's already served uh, four war patrols as a as an XO. He he knows his business inside and out. His captain has not gone on or his captain had gone on two war patrols previously, had not been successful, had been given the seahorse uh, as a second chance. Uh, they go out, and, and Cutter realizes the reason his captain hadn't been successful previously was his captain was very afraid to make attacks. He thought that, based on pre-war exercises, you know, our sub, our ships with sonar would detect our submarines, and during the exercises, they would make attacks, and it was assessed that, like, three out of four of these attacks would be successful, and the submarine would get sunk, and so... His thought was, well, if I don't ever go up against a sonar-equipped Japanese ship, I will, I will never be killed. And so he would not attack potentially uh, 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 ships that were escorted by potentially sonar-capable escorts. And it just drove Cutter nuts. He counted something like 50 ships going by, and they didn't make a single attack. And, and even uh, 60 years later, uh, when I was talking to him, he would, I, he would still get angry, uh, saying, we let 50 ships go by, and that man would not make an attack. I mean, it was still very upsetting, very frustrating to him. And he just got very vocal with the captain saying, we need to make these attacks. And they started having a kind of CO-XO conversation that only happened in submarine movies or the K-Mutiny. Um, and it got to the point where Cutter pretty much said, I think you're a coward. And the captain said, well, you could, well you're in hack. Go to your stateroom and stay there. And so he put his own XO in hack, and uh, they returned without having sank a, uh, a single ship. But the, the story um, gets better, right, in that, because like you said, he, he besmirched cutter's professional reputation in front of the crew and so by the time they returned to conus there was some mitigation of his ability to lead but what happened when he got well a how did he get fleeted up in the in the face of that that's part a because that that seems like something that may not happen in modern times and what how did the crew respond to the idea that he would be in command so yeah i mean they sent off a message saying yep attack those ships are returning to midway island and uh and at Pearl Harbor, the deputy commander of the submarine force, uh, uh, at the time, Captain John H. Babe Brown, who had been a, uh, who also was an All-American football player at the Naval Academy, uh, and had during Cutter's time at the Naval Academy been the officer uh, manager of the team, the officer representative. Uh, so he had known Cutter as a midshipman, and the commander of the submarine force, Samuel Lockwood, who had been one of Cutter's seamanship instructors, uh, read that message, and they said, "Well, there's something seriously wrong on that ship." They both knew who the captain was. They knew how the captain had done in his previous command, and they knew Cutter, and they knew how Cutter had done as an XO. And without, so without even doing any, asking any questions, without even interviewing the crew, reading the patrol report or anything, they just said, I mean, they were able to identify the problem, you know, far away from the ship and say, we need to move Cutter up, we need to move the CO out, and, uh, you know, uh, the submarine was pulling into Midway. It was actually coming up to the pier, and the message gets handed up to the bridge where Cutter is standing with the captain. Uh, the captain let him out of hack to watch the ship get pulled in. And the captain looked at it wordlessly, handed the message to Cutter, and left the bridge in the middle of boring the ship. Uh, and the message said, no, you're going to be relieved by uh, Slate Cutter. Well, I think um, the, me- the the mechanisms that you described, they leveraged. Um, it's probably a conversation for another day, but I don't know if those exist anymore, <laughs> right? Um, maybe they, there is some analogy, but it's not, you know, what you said, which is the, the football team and, you know, your former seamanship and navigation instructor. And then because of those comm links and, and those mechanisms, you, you bypassed the official way that the Bureau would be involved or a board would be 
summoned or whatever, right? Um, because obviously the proof is in the pudding that their choice worked in spades. And as I was reading this, I was like, wow, I don't know how that kind of thing would, you know, that that the good guys would win in the modern Navy because of the mechanisms. Well, there's also, the, the I think, the exigencies of war, right? I mean, this is a time when it's not just okay to go on patrol and come back with your ship safe. You got to go on patrol and come back with... Uh, you know, zappers on the side of your bridge that designate <laughs> how many Japanese submarines yeah, or point. how many Japanese ships you've sunk, right? You got to yeah. come back with kills, you know, notched on your belt. And if that doesn't happen, you, you know, there's a need to send somebody else in charge. And, and I'm also wondering, Joel, if nuke power didn't change everything. Um, and I'm not asking you to call out Rickover and your mafia, but um, it seems that this the the this sort of cowboy and that's a pejorative term, but the the sort of things that they did that is the stuff of screenplays is not part of the equation currently for maybe good reason. What, what would you say about that? Well, I, so I hear that a lot. Um, this is out there a lot, and uh, I know Mike Mike Young uh, has written a book recently about this and, uh, says that you know, a lot of our issues have to do with the advent of nuclear power and the, uh, the mentality of that. And I, I know Michael Hagerod and his dissertation, which, uh, is criminally unpublished has said something kind of similar. Um, I don't agree with that. And, uh, and in fact, I wrote an article in the journal of military history last year in the July issue about the loss of Thresher and, uh, how it really allowed Rick over to be able to do more personnel policy. But I also noted that it didn't really seem to affect um, our operational, uh, our operational ethos in the submarine force. And I, and I mean, you know, first off, you know, when, you know, going back to the other article, you know, we've never done that classified history of ASW during the Cold War and the classified history of submarine operations. And so you're left with these, some very sensational books that I can neither confirm nor deny, you know, things like, uh, Blind Man's Bluff the Book. Um, and so it's very hard sometimes to defend, you know, what is our record from the Cold War. But I will say that, you know, on the unclassified side, the things that we have to classify indicate to me that our heritage from the Second World War has continued on uh, through nuclear power. I mean, I think about things like uh, uh, 14 years ago, Naval History published an article by uh, Admiral Larson about his uh, mission as an exo of, of Sculpin, where they chased a uh, gun-running uh, sampan through the uh, South China Sea. Um, often at high speed, going you know through shoal water to do so. Um, we have other you know two other unclassified uh, stories that have come out from the Cold War: guardfish breaking off a station on the captain's own initiative to trail a Soviet Echo Two class submarine that threatened U.S. aircraft carriers in Yankee Station, and uh, as well as uh, things like uh, the published history of the Queenfish going through the uh, under ice for uh, months on end uh, to do a survey of the Siberian continental shelf. Um, and getting into an ice cave and having to get back out of that. A lot of these things take uh, they take a lot of nerve, they take a lot of uh, courage and skill. And I, I would say, I mean, particularly like when you read Eugene Flucky's memoir, and he talks about all the planning he did to do something that people called crazy. And, I mean, it really offended him when he was being told he was getting the Medal of Honor. He said, oh, that makes it sound like I did something really kooky and crazy, but I did all this planning ahead of time and I had all these contingencies planned out. And, you know, they said, we know that. We still think it looked kind of crazy. Here's the Medal of Honor. Um, I would say that mentality remains. And I, I don't think that's been changed by naval nuclear power. Well, it's good to hear. That's that's great to hear. Yeah. So, and, we, and to the listeners, we apologize for the the banging. Uh, as we've described, Beach Hall uh, is 
under construction, we're building our conference center. So uh, from time to time, although we're in a different part of the building, uh, we'll probably have some uh, ambient noise. Yeah, we moved to this studio today because we were trying to get away from the very loud construction noise outside. But uh, yeah. yeah, we haven't completely escaped it. Hey, uh, Joel, I wanted to thank you and uh, and also congratulate you again for writing these two amazing articles for winning the CNO Naval History Essay Contest, which you won two years ago as well. Um, but this article about Slade Cutter is just a, a great lesson in leadership, leadership under fire, and about the ability that, that, that an organization needs to be able to move the best leaders up into positions where they can have the greatest impact at a time when it is most needed, uh, in, in this case, in World War II, in the middle of you know, an existential war uh, for the existence of the, uh, you know, of the, of the United States. Uh, and also... You turned, uh, when we asked you to this summer uh, to write something for the October issue of Proceedings, you turned on that request very quickly and, and, and uh, sent us a great article, this one, Sub versus Sub, in the October Proceedings. starts on pages 16 and 17, and it's been great chatting with you today. Uh, thanks for all you do. Proceedings the, podcast uh, is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman uh, applies Newport. electromagnetic maneuver we, uh, warfare to, to seamlessly again, target uh, and combat and enemy threats across any domain soon. by leveraging right. traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations and giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn Forever more, there. visit NorthropGrumman.com. Just like the silent, the silent service is out there. You everywhere. just can't see them everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate the time. Great to have Joel Holwit on the show. And um, coming very soon is the November issue of Proceedings. We're going to have um, some amazing content in that article, including an, an article by a, a retired Army Colonel Medical Corps doctor who was a Navy SEAL who has uh, developed with some other colleagues of his uh, an amazing new treatment for PTSD. So stand by for that. We'll have uh, Colonel Sean Mulvaney on the podcast also in the month of November. But look for the issue coming in your uh, mailbox and on our website uh, about the end of October, beginning of November. So looking forward to that one. Uh, that wraps up this episode. Uh, join us again next week. And until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman with leadership and innovation in CWIP Block 3 and next generation shipboard signals exploitation. Northrop Grumman's Maritime Electronic and Information Warfare Suite will be used to detect, deny, deceive, and defeat threats at sea. That's why they're a leader in next generation maritime EW. To learn more, visit NorthropGrumman.com slash EW. <laughs>